What I'd like to share with you this morning is a familiar passage of Scripture. Um, and as I share this with you, I want you to turn to John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. And what I'd like to do with you is to, um, I know the title officially says, Reading Old Stories with New Jewish Eyes. I want to, because I'm sure you've read this story, reread this very wonderful Jewish story with new Jewish eyes. Now, hopefully by now you have found that text in case you are unfamiliar with what you're looking for. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. And uh, if you've gone to chapter 3 or 2, turn back a few more pages, you will find chapter 1 eventually. Now, as we set up this story, the story's context begins as far back as verses 19 to 34. So let me say something about that context, because it has to do with what I call Yochanan Matbil's evidence regarding the Lamb of God. Yochanan Hamatbil's evidence regarding the Lamb of God. And as he unfolds this, as this section unfolds, I want to see three things with you as we go through this text. Now... Howard already alluded to this. Um, we like to not only examine the text, Dr. Patrice is teaching a course right now, Torah examining the text, we'd like to keep our fingers on the text. So that's what we'll be doing as we go through this, but in order to keep our fingers on the text, we need to know something about the context. Fair enough? All right, thank you for agreeing with me. Whether you agree with me or not, that's fine. <laughs> In this particular opening section, I want to look at three things with you, a Jewish setting, a Jewish situation, and a Jewish setup. Now, it begins with this gentleman by the name of Yohanan Hamad Beal showing up on the scene. Now, let's figure out who this guy is. I know history's called him John the Baptist, but let me assure you, as being somewhat of a historian, he was not a Baptist, <laughs> nor a Methodist, nor a Presbyterian, nor Lutheran, and if I haven't covered anybody you're familiar with, and not that either. Do remember he was the son of a priest. Now, did that, that did not make him an Anglican or a Catholic either. He was the son of a Jewish priest. So if you want to call him anything, call him John the priest, or it makes it a lot simpler just to call him John the Jew. They come to John the Jew, or Yochanan Hamadbil, as we call him in the Hebrew, and they say, are you the Messiah to come? Are you Elijah? Or are you that prophet? Now, what are they talking about? Well, if you think about this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, when you're thinking about, are you Elijah? Are you talking about Messiah? Are you talking about the prophet? This is Jewish stuff that they're asking about. Jewish messianic stuff. Jewish messianic stuff that relates to the end of days. That's why we call it eschatological. If you haven't heard that term and you want to um, impress someone, go ahead and talk to them about the end times and eschatological stuff, because Yochanan here is talking about that. These were Jewish expectations of the end times, so it was eschatological pictures that were going on here. The prophet, by the way, is the prophet that was promised to be like Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 18, in case you haven't um, understood that particular part of the story. Now, Yochanan's uh, response is, no, I'm not any of those, but here is who I am. I'm the, one, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's a text taken from Isaiah chapter 40. And guess what? This is more Jewish messianic stuff that we've got here. Now, the people who were asking him these questions it's important to understand who they were. Now, this is not part of the story, but this is important to the story. So, here are the people who come 
and ask Yochanan these Jewish messianic things related to the end times. They're called the Jews. But if you look at John chapter 1, verse 19, we're told who they are specifically. They are priests and Levites who were sent. Now, who gets to sent by the Jews? Now, who gets to send priests and Levites? The Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious hierarchy located in Jerusalem and ultimately in Judah or Judea. All right? right at the outset of his gospel, John the author has identified for us who these people, the Jews, are as he refers to them in this gospel. Technical term, eudaioi. If you've never had any Greek, now you can say to somebody, that sounds Greek to me, um, means Judean. It tells us where they're from. So when you read Jews in this gospel, in all likelihood, it is either those who are doing the sending or those who are being sent by the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious hierarchy. Everybody with me? More importantly, are you with Yochanan? Okay, then we can get back to our story. All right, so they're asking the question, and uh, that's part of our Jewish setting. We move on to a very Jewish situation. How do we know it's a Jewish situation? It's mikvah time. Now, when we think about mikvahs or mikvahot, um, there were plenty in and around Jerusalem at that time. We were there again this summer, and usually as we, uh, usually we go visit the site of the southern wall excavations, we were there again. You can see, depending on what stage of exca excavation they're at, anywhere from four dozen to 100 different mikvahot, places where people go through the mikvah. And as it turns out, Yeshua is going through a mikvah. Now, in this case, it doesn't happen to be outside Jerusalem, but I share that piece of information with you to show you that this is part of the Jewish setting that's going on here. This is a Jewish situation that we're moving through. So anyhow, at Yeshua's mikvah, something unusual happens. The Spirit of God, the Ruach Hashem, descends as a dove. Oh, this is real New Covenant stuff, right? No, 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 no. You read just a few weeks ago, did you not? The opening section, Bereshit, in the opening few lines, there's the Spirit of God, the Ruach Hashem, very much in place. The Ruach Hashem um, also uh, shows up in some key passages of Scripture as well as throughout our history. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. It's a familiar text. It says, A shoot will come up from him from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, you know who Jesse is? Yeah, not part of the James gang in our history. but um, Out of what looked like was cut down from Jesse's line, from there, from his roots, a branch springs forth. Branch is a messianic name. Or title, and then it says, The Spirit of the Lord, the Ruach Hashem, will rest on him. Ooh, pretty important, more messianic stuff, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. It's the Haftorah text that, that uh, Yeshua commented, read and commented from in the synagogue in Capernaum in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach the great news to those, to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort those that, well, you know that text. Spirit of God is involved, too, in that. Oh, by the way, in Isaiah 11, uh, when this branch springs up and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, do you remember the rest of the text? You know, it's where the lion and the, and the lamb get together and the leopard and the wolf are tame and there's no more war and the knowledge of God covers the earth. What's going on here? Obviously, a messianic portrait that's being described, or at least referenced as part of the background. Now, look, 
you're looking at the text and you said you were, you're keeping your finger in text. They don't read that in the text. Yes, you do, because any person who heard or read this text would have thought back to those texts because they were familiar with those texts. In fact, they were so familiar with those texts, they had memorized them. The people in the Second Temple period, yes, the people in the Second Temple period had memorized all of Scripture. So when these references or allusions come up, they, you know, they catch them right away, even if we miss them. Oh, by the way, there's another one that's important as part of the background of this text. It's part of the um, commemoration of Rosh Kodesh. It's Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. It says, a redeemer will come, a liberator will come to Israel, to Zion, and turn away un ungodliness from it. And then God says, this is my promise. My spirit, which I've placed in their mouth, will not depart from them. Notice, the spirit of God and his relationship to this messianic portrait that's being developed as part of the background of our story in this very Jewish situation. Well, there's more to this as well. There's some wonderful parallels with Isaac, but that's not for this particular time or this particular rendition of the story because I want to move from the Jewish situation to the Jewish setup, verses 29 and 30. And this begins, if you'll stick with me, with a holiday panorama, or it involves a holiday panorama. We've had an eschatological picture. We've got a messianic portrait in the previous verses, verses 32 to 34, and now we move on to a holiday panorama that begins here. Um, the setup is this. Uh, John the Jew sees Yeshua coming, and he points out to his followers, you know, the old English term. I like the old English here. Behold the Lamb. It just sort of sounds right, doesn't it? Behold the Lamb. There's an interesting midrash, and I'm assuming that some of you, if not most of you, are familiar with the Jewish religious literature known as midrashim. It goes back to rabbinic times. It incorporates some wonderful insights. The midrash at this particular point, as it's commenting on Exodus 12, says, and when he, talking about the angel, sees the blood, Exodus 12, what did he behold? He beheld the blood of Isaac's Akedah. Akedah, you're familiar with the Akedah? It's a term we use to describe the attempted sacrifice of Isaac. Okay, good. Then we get back to the story. All right. He beheld the blood of Isaac's Akedah, as it was said, this is Genesis 22 being quoted, God will for himself behold the lamb for a burnt offering. Did you catch that? There's your phrase. God will for himself behold the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, friends, you are familiar with the fact, having just gone through the high holidays, that one of the significant readings for Rosh Hashanah is the story of the Akedah. So as he launches this phrase, those who are familiar with the story in our stories, whether they are, may they remember the tales of the Magid, there's another commercial, or whether they don't, they would have made this connection with Rosh Hashanah. God will for himself behold the lamb. There it is. And John the priest sets the stage for us. Um, furthermore, this is, a, this is a text that occurs in the second temple period. It's the late second temple period of Judaism. Look, as Jews, we are very good at history. When we talk about the stuff around the time of Solomon who built the first temple, we call it the first temple period. Later on, the temple was rebuilt, as you're well uh, aware of. And just to keep things sim simple, what do we call that? The second temple period. When we get around to building a temple again, what do you think we'll call that? 
Jewish history is simple. Just stick with me on this. Okay, so during the late Second Temple period, when the crowds would arrive in Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover, and some have estimated could be anywhere close to a quarter of a million people would show up for the celebration, um, they would need the lambs that they could use for the Passover sacrifice or actually for the Passover meal itself. Uh, they would not bring, by the late Second Temple period, they would not bring these lambs along with them because they realized for many of them it was a long journey and on a long journey the lamb would be disqualified because it would get marked up in some way so it would be flawed. You don't want, an un, you don't want a flawed lamb for a Passover sacrifice. So in the late Second Temple period, there was a, a, a procedure established where as each family showed up in Jerusalem, they would go to the temple courtyard area where there would be a pen of lambs that were potential animals for the Passover meal and sacrifice. There'd be a priest presiding over that particular uh, part of the process, and as a family came up to Jerusalem, it would come to that courtyard area with the help of the priest. The priest would examine the lambs and see which one qualified for this particular family. Why would it need to qualify? It still needed to be uh, flawless, but it also needed to be the right size for the family to eat. And having examined the lambs, the priest would designate for the family which would be the appropriate lamb for that family to eat, and the priest would say, behold the lamb. John, a priest himself and the son of a priest, was very familiar with that process, may in fact have supervised that process. And when he sees Yeshua coming, he then does this. He says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's brought the Passover picture into play for us here as well as part of this amazing panorama. Now there's more to it than this. There's a whole vast library of Second Temple literature that helps us understand the Second Temple period. And since we're in the Second Temple period here in this particular story, it might help to know some of that library. This comes from a set of texts called the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. And here's what it says, and listen carefully to what it says. This is written in the Second Temple period. And I saw that a virgin was born from Judah, and from her was born a spotless lamb. Now, um, the verses that follow then mention that the uh, Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world and will save all the nations as well as Israel, is this very same one. Now, it's interesting that the lamb metaphor is used again for the Messiah. And Jacob is recorded then in that particular text in the Testaments of the Patriarchs as saying to Joseph, to Joseph and not to Judah. He says to Joseph, through you will be fulfilled a heavenly prophecy concerning the Lamb of God. Through you, not Judah, but Joseph, we will fulfill the heavenly prophecy concerning the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, because the sinless one will die for impious people by the blood of the covenant. By the blood of the covenant. Not part of the story, but important to the story. What's he talking about? Back in... Um, Exodus 24, verse 8, Moses comes down from the mountain and sprinkles the blood on the people, and he says, this is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant. That's a reference back to that, which later is used by Yeshua at the Passover meal when he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Those are all interconnected. But since this is not Passover time, that's all of the Passover story you get from me right now. Anyhow, 
He will die for impious people by the blood of the covenant for the salvation of the Gentiles and of Israel and the destruction of the devil and his servants. That's all part of the Lamb of God picture. But I want you to notice something striking that John the priest did say about the Lamb of God. He didn't just say, behold, the Lamb of God. He didn't say, behold, the Passover Lamb of God. He didn't say that which we remember back at Rosh Hashanah. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Passover lamb doesn't take away people's sins, I'm sorry to tell you, not in the sacrifice system. What animal takes away the sins of the people in the sacrifice system of ancient Judaism? This, thank you, I'm glad somebody out there got it. The scapegoat, the scapegoat um, brings us to what holiday? Yom Kippur, of course. In other words, as this thing is set up for us, this story has a, a vast, I like this old term, panoply of pictures, a vast panorama of holiday imagery. So there's a multiple holiday background to this text, whether it's Rosh Hashanah, whether it's Passover, whether it's now Yom Kippur in the reference to the animal that takes away the sins of the world. And yet we're still not done with this part of the story because there's further information found in the literature of the Second Temple period. This comes from First Enoch, and there you have a story being told, a vision that unfolds with a variety of animals. And as these, this vision unfolds, David is pictured as a lamb that becomes a ram. And then the portion of this particular vision uh, that summarizes the Maccabean conflict. You remember the Maccabees? Well, you will shortly once again, won't you? The portion of the vision that summarizes the Maccabean conflict pictures ravens, the Seleucids, smashing Eden the sheep with, until one lamb grows a large horn and is able to defend himself. And the lamb in that vision that grew a great horn and that prevailed over the enemies, the Seleucids, clearly as the vision unfolds, represents Judah the Maccabee. And so we have another holiday connection, Hanukkah. For the Jewish nation that had suffered for centuries, Judah, by the way, was quickly accepted by many as the fulfillment of God's promises to send the deliverer, a liberator to his people yet again. But think about Judah for a second as part of this wonderful holiday panorama that is part of the package here. Judah met a premature death. The liberator met a premature death. He became a striking prototype of national salvation as well. The link here between the lamb metaphor um, and the uh, conquering Jewish deliverer is a significant development of this time period. Um, remember I quoted to you from the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. The text said, said, and I saw a virgin that was born from Judah, and from her, pardon me, and yes, and from her was born a spotless lamb. Then the text goes on, and all the wild animals rushed against him, but the lamb conquered them and destroyed them, trampling underfoot. Now, do you, are you putting the package together at this point? When you see the lamb, it's not like Mary had a little. The lamb in these texts is a conquering hero. This is a two-pronged picture or image of the lamb, both one that suffers, as these texts say, but also one that conquers. Or to put it back into the language of our ancient rabbis, you have Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David, the one who suffers and the one who dies, and it's all found in this delightful imagery of a lamb of God that ties us in 
to so many of our holidays. That's part of the evidence presented for us as the context for this story coming from Yochanan Hamat Biel, John the Jew. Well, now that we've set the story up, I want to share with you briefly or outline with you briefly the Talmudim's experience of the Lamb of God. That's the evidence regarding the Lamb of God. Now the Talmudim's experience with the Lamb of God. Uh, this now finally gets us to the main part of the story, John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. And so we're told there that Yochanan and Andrew, the followers of Yochanan Hamatbil. Okay, now that's too many Yochanans for my sake, um, because that it also happens to be my name, and I don't know who I'm talking about when I say Yochanan anymore. So how should we do this? Yochanan Hamadbil, we'll now call John the priest, because he was. His follower, one of his Talmudim, will call John the Jew. Is that fair enough? Okay, for our purposes, just so I keep my story straight, John the priest and John the Jew. So, John the Jew and Andrew were followers of John the priest. Um, and they heard him identify Yeshua as the Lamb of God. And in fact, as a result of John the priest's statement, John the Jew and Andrew, that sort of rhymes, doesn't it? John the Jew and Andrew. John the Jew and Andrew stopped following their former leader and began to follow Yeshua. Now, as soon as Yeshua noticed, uh, he turned and he asked them a question. He says, what do you seek? And as you read the story and answer, they asked the rabbi, where are you staying? Well, look, when you think about it, that's not really an answer, is it? And that sounds, answering a question with a question sounds rather unusual in any framework, I would suggest, other than a typically Jewish one. Yeshua asked them what they were looking for, but more than that, he really asked them what they truly desired. And understanding the rabbi's question correctly, they answered him with a question. Now, answering a question with another question is really not an unusual thing to do in Jewish circles. I'm sure you've encountered that. And in fact, some people become so proficient at this that they become professionals at it. And more importantly for our story, this, be, this had become a favorite teaching tool of the rabbis and therefore an important part of the learning process of the students. So, this question of theirs is not then merely a response. By inquiring where he was staying, they had actually communicated to him that they were interested in becoming his disciples. You see, this happened to be a common rabbinic expression, where are you staying, that is, because that showed an interest in following him and learning from him, because in those days when you set up a school, it wouldn't be MSI located in this building. The school would be the school of Rabbi so-and-so. Now, where is Rabbi so-and-so? He might be in this building. Sometime later, he might be in another building. Sometime later, he may be walking somewhere on the street. Get the picture? In those days, the rabbis had traveling schools. So when you ask the question, where are you staying, what are you asking? You're asking, where is school being held? Now, this question of theirs, as I said, is a common rabbinic expression in the first century, and so also then was a statement that Yeshua used in response. He said, come and see, come and see. In fact, show up in the classroom. 
And that was the most common formula which rabbis used to invite someone to study with them. It was come to learn. And so John the Jew and Andrew here had expressed their desire to become Yeshua students. And as rabbi, Yeshua accepted them as his disciples, as his Talmudim or students, by extending them an invitation to study with him in his yeshiva. Well, enough about the ancient yeshiva application and um, acceptance process. Now it's time to move on to the uh, yeshiva student recruitment program. Because the following day, Andrew, who happened to have a brother whose name was Shimon or Peter, he asked Shimon to join them to become part of the student body. So now Yeshua has three disciples or students. And the day after that, they found Philip, and he joins the group. He joins the student body. Now, it was Philip who then approached Nathaniel in an attempt to convince him that they had, in fact, found the Messiah. So he wanted Nathaniel to join them. But as the story unfolds, you'll find that Nathaniel's not in any rush. And this, despite Philip's glowing description of Yeshua. Okay, now that's the backstory. We move to the core of the story itself in verses 43 to 51. But first, I want you to note um, Philip's characterization of this important rabbi. He says, this is the one whom Moses wrote about. And when we read the story, you hear the story, yes, of course it's the one that Moses wrote about. Now, I too am a professor, and this is now an exam. Where did Moses write about him? Moses, not Isaiah, not Micah, not Jeremiah. Where did Moses write about him? Deuteronomy 18 is certainly one of the texts, the prophet to come, but there are two more significant ones. Numbers 24 and Genesis 49. Numbers 24, you know that strange prophet comes sailing onto the scene. You remember the guy who had a uh, debate with his donkey and lost the debate? Okay. Um, a star will rise in Jacob, a scepter to rule Israel. Scepter, ah, a king to rule over Israel. Genesis 49, right around verse 10 and 11, Jacob is blessing his kids, and he tells Judah, the scepter, the rulership, will not depart from you until Shiloh, and it's a messianic title, or expectation comes. Moses wrote about him. Uh, Philip also said, this is the one whom the prophets predicted. Now, this were far more... Uh, familiar with, you know, predicted like his birthplace, like the actual time of his coming, predicted his death, predicted his resurrection, all those kinds of insignificant things. Um, I shared this with my classes um, Thursday night. I mentioned that there was, this is, as you can tell, sort of an aside to the story, but important to the story. I shared with them that there was this professor, college professor on the West Coast a number of years ago, and uh, what he did is he, along with some students, uh, decided to work out the probabilities that one person could fulfill 48 of the predictions that Yeshua fulfilled. Okay, ready for the probabilities? And he wrote all about it in a book called Science Speaks. He says, the odds, having worked out the probabilities for each of the predictions, is 1 out of 1 times 10 with 157 zeros after it. That's a pretty large number. And just in case he was off by a factor of a million-fold, it's still 1 times 10 with 151 zeros after it, okay? So anyhow, yes, he's the one that the prophets predicted. And then he calls him the one from Nazareth. Now, this is going to get him into trouble in just a minute, but why does he, why does he um, 
can make the connection with Nazareth. Because as the text makes very clear for us in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, there's a connection between, listen carefully, this is going to be real difficult. There's a connection between Nazareth and Netzer. Did you catch that? Okay, good. Netzer is the Hebrew term for branch. It is, in fact, used in a number of the key messianic predictions, Isaiah 11 being one of them, alluded to with a, a synonym in Isaiah chapter 53. But again, not enough time to develop that here because it's sort of, although related to the story, not the central, not the central part of the story. So he calls him Yeshua of Nazareth. He even calls him Yeshua, and that in itself has implications. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, it's a text that sounds almost like Zechariah 9, 9. You know, that's the one where, where say to the daughter of Zion, your king's coming and he's riding on a donkey. Here it says, say to the daughter of Zion. Many translations say your salvation's coming. If you read that in the Hebrew text, it says your Yeshua is coming. And then it uses personal pronouns. He's bringing his rewards with him. So with that connection of Yeshua to someone who is who has memorized the whole of the Hebrew scriptures like Nathaniel had or John's readers, that would resonate in the background. The one whose salvation, Yeshua, is coming, bringing his rewards with him. Uh, lest you think I'm making a little bit too much of this, let me share with you a prayer that goes back in Jewish tradition. Well, I first saw it in an edition of the Moxor, late 1800s, early 1900s. Now, gang, I didn't see it back then. I saw it from a text that was from back then. And so we incorporated it into our own Moxor, and the text reads, and I noticed one of the more modern and more uh, popular Moxors uses it as well. May it be your will that the sounding of the shofar, this is done at the sounding of the shofar at Rosh Hashanah, which we have done, will be embroidered in the veil by the appointed angel as you accepted it by Yeshua, the one who sits on your throne, end quote. So the name gets picked up, the name is emphasized, to Nathaniel as well. Now that's a lot of stuff. But despite all of this, Nathaniel has his questions. And the first one had to do with the kind of quality Nazareth could produce. And so he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And there's a whole wonderful background here as well. Uh, but Philip doesn't respond to it. Philip, being a smart person, did not argue the issue. Instead, he simply invited Nathaniel to see for himself knowing that things would change when Yeshua entered the picture. And then amazingly, we observe that when Yeshua saw Nathanael, he said, Behold, an Israeli in whom there is no deceit. Why didn't he just say, here's a person in whom there's no deceit? Or address him by name. Can you imagine that? Nathanael walks up and Yeshua says, Hey, Nate, how's it going? That would have blown his mind. No, Yeshua does not call him by his name. Rather, he saw Nathanael, and he described his character, and more so, as we'll discover in just a few minutes. And to this, Nathanael, in amazement, responds, How do you know me? How do you know me? Look, any yo-yo could have identified him as an, as an Israeli. No? Why so amazed? What's the big deal? Well, um, he said, how do you know me? And the implication here is, how do you know even what I've been thinking? Now, I'll unwrap that in a minute. But understand that the Hebrew term for know carries with it um, 
a far richer and deeper meaning than we sometimes give to the word know in English. So, how do you know me so deeply? And then the conversation follows that includes the most extraordinary exchange, again, unless we understand it from the Jewish context and rabbinic background supplied to us from that time period. You see, in answer to Nathaniel's question, striking, strikingly, Yeshua says this, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And in this context, I'm going to suggest, in fact, he's saying, I saw right through you. And notice what comes back. Immediately comes back Nathaniel's even more astonishing response. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, king of Israel makes sense in a Jewish context, but son of God for a Jew? Well, hold on a few, a few minutes. We'll get to that. Because more importantly for us, we should be asking the question, but how in the world did Nathaniel come to this conclusion just from Yeshua's words? From this short interchange, how did he figure out that Yeshua was the Messiah from nothing more than Yeshua's statement that he saw him sitting under a fig tree? There were a lot of fig trees in those days. Look, that's hardly a reason to believe in anyone's Messiahship. Well, from Jewish tradition, we know that the rabbis used to teach, listen to this carefully, typically rabbinic, that the rabbis used to teach that if a person wanted to meditate on scriptures, and have a fruitful meditation, he or she sits it under a fig tree. Do you get the humor? Fruitful meditation, fig tree? Okay, some of you didn't, now you do good. That's why I say it's typical, typically rabbinic. Because the Torah was connected to a fig tree in the uh, rabbinic writings. In Zechariah, sitting under a fig tree was a picture of messianic peace and prosperity. So from this, as we put it all together, we realize Nathaniel was not only sitting under a fig tree, but he was sitting there meditating on the scriptures and actively hoping for the coming of the Messiah. On a daily basis, when we do the Amidah, we, we pray that God would speedily cause to flourish the offspring of David. He will in love bring a redeemer to his children for his namesake. That's the anticipation that's part of our daily prayers. It was part of his meditation here as well given the background of the fig tree. Well, so perhaps this was a good, a timely, educated guess. What would a person like Nathaniel be doing anyhow? Anticipating the Messiah. What would he be doing anyhow? Meditating on the scripture. So yeah, it's a good educated guess, one might be tempted to say. Well, let's see. By calling Nathaniel an Israeli in whom there is no deceit. Did you catch what he called him? Yeshua explicitly um, directed Nathanael's attention to Jacob, who in the book of Genesis was accused of much deceit. Important to the story. Who accused him of much deceit? Esau. Credible source? Hmm. He was never accused of deceit either by Isaac or, more importantly, by God. That's what the story says. So I just throw this out to you since the text or the parsha for next week begins this story. Perhaps we should be more in line with God's evaluation than Esau's evaluation, but that's not our story. Okay, back to the story. Jacob is accused of much deceit, and uh, remember, too, that Jacob is the first person to be called an Israeli since his name also becomes Israel. 
Yeshua, by calling Nathanael an Israeli and by using the word deceit, had therefore connected Nathanael with the story of Jacob and so was indicating to Nathanael just what passage he was meditating on under that fig tree and undoubtedly was still thinking about or it was still fresh in his mind. Therefore, we get Nathanael's striking response. Nathanael recognized his supernatural knowledge immediately. He was sitting under the fig tree. He was, in fact, meditating on the Jacob story. And this becomes even more apparent, let me suggest, or evident when we read Yeshua's closing words in verse 51 of our text. He says, Truly I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, remember, in Genesis chapter 28, which is the parsha two weeks down the road, we learn about Jacob being forced to flee from home because of the accusation of deceit by Esau. And you remember the story. On his way, he reached Bethel, and he decides to spend the night there. He then has a dream, a dream in which he saw angels, what does it say, ascending and descending, ascending and descending, the same unexpected order in John's text as you find in Genesis 28. Look, when you read that text, what you should expect is the angels descending and ascending. They're not. In Genesis 28, they're ascending and descending. Wonderful part of that story, not this story here, but it's reflected in the way it is, the way um, Yeshua is describing the same thing in John chapter 1, verse 51. Angels ascending and descending. Now, the portion for next week, which is the portion before the ascending and descending, includes Esau's accusation of deceit. Then you have the text of the ascending and the descending on, on, um, on Jacob. And then you have the next section, um, a couple weeks down the road, uh, uh, further Let's see, next week, a couple weeks, three weeks down the road. Um, Yeshua says in verse 50 of our text, you will see greater things. You will see greater things. When we look at that text now from three weeks down the road, what we see then is what Jacob would see next. In other words, Jacob became Israel after seeing God, after seeing greater things even than the angels. Are you with me? And are you with the flow of the text? All right, then. Nathaniel was definitely meditating on the Jacob story. By the way, the Jacob story are part of the readings in the weeks leading up to Hanukkah. Hanukkah's background had already been set for us in chapter 1, verse 9. He's the light that gives light to everyone that comes into the world. It's almost a wonderful picture of the Shamash and the Hanukkah. But anyhow, so these are the readings leading up to the Hanukkah story. Um, Yeshua comes along, makes it clear to him that Yeshua knew exactly what Nathanael was doing and thinking, which is why Nathanael then asked, how do you know me? Nathanael understood that Yeshua knew what was in his mind before Yeshua even met him. And so he drew the only possible conclusion. In front of him was standing the Messiah of Israel, and therefore comes back his response. He says, Rabbi. He says, King of Israel. He says, Son of God. I promised something on the Son of God, so let me deliver before we close. Psalm chapter 2. You are my son. I have, today I have declared it. It is the promise that was fulfilled 
when God installed yet another king that was part of David's line. It's a, it's a Davidic covenant fulfillment. Rabbi, who was the first to be called rabbi in our history? Trick question. Moshe Rabbeinu. So the title actually re refers back that far. So he's saying, I've come to fulfill the Mosaic covenant, not just the Davidic covenant. Angels ascending and descending, this is important too, because the promise that God made to Abraham was confirmed to Jacob as the heir at the time, Genesis 28, that he saw the heavens opened and the angels were ascending and descending. The actual text is 28:13, And then he described, uh, Nathaniel calls him son of man. Son of man taken directly out of Daniel chapter 7 and the uh, literature of the second temple period. Son of man was a major majestic supernatural character. So if you want to see something about a title of Yeshua and his supernaturalness, it is son of man, not son of God. And I know that flies in the face of most people's reasons, but that, uh, reasoning, but that's the way it's used in those days. The son of man in Daniel 7 comes riding in on the clouds of heaven. There is only one cloud rider in all of Jewish scripture, and that's God himself. Comes riding in on the Shekinah. Well, the consequences for Nathaniel. Nathaniel responds in faith. But Nathaniel also responds in faithfulness. By the way, you know what the Hebrew word for faith is? Emunah. Translate emunah for me. It means faithfulness. And that's what then Philip, pardon me, what Nathaniel modeled for us here. Faithfulness to the very end. Because here's Nathaniel in, in chapter 1 of John. But Nathaniel is still there in John chapter 21. Faithful to the end. Having set the pattern for us in commitment in commitment to the Jewish Yeshua kind of lifestyle. By the way, Chayah Sarah, the life of Sarah, as part of the understanding in its historical background is also in Abraham's actions, a statement about a commitment to a Jewish lifestyle. But that is not this morning's story, that's this afternoon's story. I wanna say one thing in closing, and that is this. In, you've noticed, hopefully, the intensively and intensely Jewish nature of the text, of the images, of the interactions, and of the very information itself. All of this indicates, or should indicate to us, that you're dealing with a Jewish audience in this gospel, you're dealing with Jewish authorship of this gospel, and therefore that validates, this is important, the antiquity and authenticity and accuracy of this gospel. You can count on it and count on the story contained therein, and therefore you can be encouraged to follow the example of Nathaniel in his faith and faithfulness in response to the one whom Philip helped him see, and, who, and whom both John the Jew and John the priest help us better understand. And hopefully we do, as we have now reread an old story through Jewish eyes, new Jewish eyes, I trust.